I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Nell Zink, this is your first doxology event. Yes, true. And not only that, as you told me uh, just before we came on, you've basically been speaking German because you live in Germany and when you're in Germany you speak German and you've just made the switch this morning That's to fly here. That's true. I, I may speak in a very halting way. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Right. What should I? What should I do at those moments? Uh, just uh, encourage you with br- kind looks. Breathe deeply and, and just breathe deeply. Try to, okay. You know. You sound pretty pretty fluent to me. Okay. By okay. the way, um, we're going to talk about doxology. I know we'll talk about your other books, uh, Mislaid, The Wall Creeper, Nicotine, but I think we're going to start with some readings. I want to ask you just first of all because I've got to be honest, I didn't know and had to look it up. Doxology. What is it? Well, if you look up uh, doxa on Wikipedia or whatever, um, what it will tell you is that the in in Plato's theory about Plato's cave, um, those illusions you see when you're trapped in a cave are called the doxa. They're like the the seeming, but it's it's the same word. It was picked up in like the Septuagint to mean glory, the sort of the shining that's around a saint or around angels is also doxa, which, you know, was enough for me. I, I, <laughs> I thought that was a nice little conceptual historical paradox that appealed to me in many ways. And, and it just seemed to me like a good working title. I had sort, of, sort of had to fight for it. Nobody knew what it meant. Mm. Maybe here in, um, in England, people are familiar with the doxology simply because it's a Church of England thing? Um, yes, but I think I think in the London Review of Bookshops, you, this is probably your best Probably bet, my really. best chance of getting people who've heard the song. I mean, not yeah. that everybody here is really well-versed in, in theological terminology, well, but... Well, there, there's that song they sing in Anglican Church and also in Episcopal churches in the US. Uh, Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Um, and that's the doxology. Okay, so you started off saying you didn't think you would might be able to speak that fluently, and now you've started singing, and we're like three minutes into the event. I'm, I'm Thank like, you very much. I'm like much. a skylark. <laughs> this, like, get me started. So we are going to kind of go into this book yeah. with the, the, the kind of first part of it, as it were, the first sort of substantive part of it, uh, which takes us to this fantastic world of uh, kind of early 90s scene music, indies 
music, noise core, all that sort of thing. And the, the, the thing that stuck with me was one of your characters who becomes the great kind of superstar unexpectedly. He's, his music is described as gorgeous because it doesn't sound like somebody riding a lawnmower. And if you don't sound like two ride-on lawnmowers, your music basically gets described as gorgeous. So um, tell us about this world and why you wanted to write about it. I, I wanted to write about it because, it, you know, I was alive, I guess. So a lot of things I experienced made a, an impression on me. And, and, and just wanting to work through them in my mind, seeing contradictions there and, and difficulties and the attitude people had toward artistic creation, what constituted artistic creation, a very, a very almost uh, like, like something out of Bourdieu's rules of art, the way people would position themselves, even, even in the choice of what songs they wanted to cover in that scene, where you, you, you wanted to say, well, what am I doing? How is it different from what other people are doing? How am I positioning myself in, in this field? It, it was a very conscious choice people were making. And that, even though it was a completely artistically naive scene where people had no connection to any kind of formal training as musicians mm. or artists, but what they did have was access, a kind of access to higher education that isn't as widespread now simply because of changes in the way you know, government grants are handed out. Mm -hmm. So I make, I make that an explicit theme of, of the start of the book, that we have, um, well, the two, two protagonists, uh, a man and a woman, and the man has is from like some potent dairy farming town in Wisconsin, but he's gone to the University of Wisconsin at Madison and majored in art history with no other goal in mind than simply to know something about art history. And then he just goes to New York to work as a temp simply because it's New York. And he meets a woman who's basically a runaway, who's left her family behind because she thinks they're too conservative. And, and then they, they meet this musician who's a, a native New Yorker. And suddenly, their dream is basically to to have a band, to be in a band. Yes, and um, and you were saying you enjoyed two brief passages that describe not the band they have together, which never really gels. Oh well, I shouldn't give too mainly much. because like they can't really play instruments and all that sort of no, thing. Well, they, one no, of them can more no. than the other, but you know, really. No, there there are, there are bands that were only good when they couldn't play instruments. Mm. The cramps, the butthole surfers, mm. this is a common phenomenon. As soon as they learn to play, they become a like a boring bar band and sound like everybody else. But this anyway, is not one of those bands, is this it? Is, this is a description of the, the female protagonist's uh, teenage band when she's in 10th grade. At the Slinky's first and final gig, on a Sunday afternoon at the Jewish Community Center in Bethesda, they plugged into the previous band's equipment. None of them knew what a monitor was for. Pam couldn't hear her guitar after the drums came in, so she turned up its volume knob. It still didn't play audibly, so she cranked her amplifier. She sang as loud as she could and couldn't hear that either. The bassist crouched by her amp, trying to hear herself, and it must have been feeding back like a motherfucker, but nobody on stage could make out she was, what she was playing, not even her. Into the clattering tornado of sound, Pam chanted her doggerel about sabotage in the voice of a tone-deaf auctioneer. The room emptied fast, except for two boys in black dusters who stayed through all three songs and said the Slinkies were a dead ringer for late-period germs. 
That was not what she wanted to hear. The germ singer, Darby Crash, had killed himself in 1980. So by implication, their sound was not avant-garde. <laughs> <laughs> the other little bit, yeah, the, there's a description she also enjoyed of a band that uh, appears before the, the guy who later becomes a rock star. A band even more obscure than he is when he's still very obscure. Joe, that's the future rock star, sat in the front row, bass on his lap, playing along quietly with the opening act, billed as Broad Spectrum. It consisted of a woman singer, a scared-looking boy playing tenor recorder, a sequencer that wasn't working right, and a keyboard player holding a tambourine. The keyboardist was responsible for the sequencer. She kept jabbing at it, shaking the tambourine at random, and alternating between two chords on the keyboard with her left hand. You could hear that she was right-handed. <laughs> the woodwind looked frustrated, trying for low notes and getting overtones. The singer's dance moves kept taking her away from the microphone. Her voice could be heard when she stood still for the chorus, but it remained incomprehensible because she cupped the mic with both hands, looking very earnest and sexy while it was practically inside her mouth and kept feeding back. The group performed as though they not only hadn't rehearsed, but had won the gig in a raffle <laughs> earlier in the day before they founded the band. <laughs> After their first number subsided, the singer nudged the keyboardist aside and fiddled with the sequencer. The setup began to play Susudio by Phil Collins. <laughs> she returned to the mic, glared at Joe for singing along, and said, it's a borrowed keyboard, give us a minute. Three minutes later, the band continued its set with four-finger organ, tambourine duties devolving on the singer. The, the woodwind took a rest. The singer's yawping teetered on the edge of feedback until Simon, the sound man, rendered the mic inaudible. The whole thing was pathetic, and when it was done, everybody clapped for a long time. There's <laughs> <laughs> a kind of... Is it a kind of bitterness there that might lead a reader to believe that I've experienced exactly that scene? I think maybe you have. Do you want to talk a little bit about your time in Ferret? No, no, I was thinking of the party where I saw that band. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Ferret, I'm sure you knew much more about what you were doing. <laughs> no, it, I'll, I'll never forget it because the, the guy, it was a guy in Philadelphia who had... Um, he was a computer programmer, like a freelancer. He had more money than most people in this sort of edgy anarchist music scene. And, and he had rented a big loft space. And um, he just took some sofas and blocked off access to his kitchen and decided he would declare it a concert hall for an evening. And so this, this band played. And I remember sitting with a friend of mine and saying, you can kind of tell none of these people was ever hit as a child for making a mistake. <laughs> um, and, and, but, the, but the guy who had, had the space, the, he was part of a band called Blacktail. And I just walk up to him. So he's like this, this cool, edgy, hipster, anarchist guy. And I said, Blacktail, Blacktail, you mean like the magazine? Because there was a, a porno magazine about 
African-American women called, <laughs> called Black Tail. And he was so embarrassed. He like turned red like a little kid. It was so cute. He was like, he, he couldn't even answer me. <laughs> one, one of the it things so that cute. one of the things that does come out yes. at this, you know, as you describe this scene, is that these would be musicians. Sometimes yes. they want to be stars. Sometimes they don't. They just want to make art, and the commercial stuff kind yeah. of slots in or doesn't around it. But they are still basically children. They don't really know what they want to do or why they're doing it, do yeah. they? Well, I mean, the people in broad spectrum are not main characters. Maybe I should read from a more serious bit. Because well, how much more serious? How serious, people, other people have read my stuff, how serious does it get on a scale of one? <laughs> it is grimly, darkly serious. Very, very heavy themes are constantly present. Okay, go for it. So this, this couple, they have a kid. When Flora was three, Daniel took her to the triennial Svoboda family reunion. She came back raving about tricycles and wagons wearing a tiny gold-plated cross on a chain around her neck. He was no longer an accredited family member, but the Svobodas seemed to feel there was hope for her. He let her wear the cross until they got home. Then he said it was too valuable to wear every day, took it off her, and threw it in the trash. A week later, she asked for the cross again. When she couldn't have it, she cried. A week after that, her toy hippo ate dog shit and had to be put out of its misery. She saw a crucifix in the window of a Santeria store and asked Joe to buy it. It was as though she couldn't get Jesus out of her mind and wanted him for her new stuffed animal. Fortunately, it was a cash-only store. The crucifix had been blessed by a voodoo priest and was very expensive. Joe couldn't help her out on the spot, but he told Daniel about her wish. If she needs a shirtless guy with a beard, we can get her a G.I. Joe, he replied. We'll make our own cross, and she can put it on it with rubber bands. If it's a cross she wants, we can... No, no, there is no way I'm making her a toy cross. What's next? A toy cat of nine tails so she can self-flagellate? Jesus is weird, Joe remarked. You can say that again. Why is he on the cross? Daniel raised his eyes to heaven. Oh, man, Joe, well... Historically, he wasn't always on the cross. I think for something like 12 centuries, he was the risen Christ, fully dressed. Then there was Gothic art and like the plague or something, so they switched to showing him on the cross. You know, he, he died on the cross, right? Why? Um, the weight of his own body, I guess. <laughs> Makes it hard to breathe when you're hanging by your arms. But he's so skinny. Not in real life. He was always reading out with rich tax collectors. He could make food appear by magic and turn water into wine. That's why he died so fast, like hours before the skinny dudes they crucified at the same time. The Romans didn't even have to break his legs. That is gross, Joe said. And he's scared shitless up there, screaming out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But you know who God was, who could have helped him out the whole time? His dad. <laughs> My dad would not do that. My dad would. That was a lot more hardcore than I thought it was. <laughs> it seemed to get quite a lot of laughs, all the same. <laughs> the reverberating Christianity debacle aggravated Pam's sense that her daughter was growing up without her. Every moment she spent at the office was a moment when some stranger and or family member of ill will and worse intentions could plan a fateful wrong idea in Flora's head. 
Joe tried to console her by recording selected playtime. It, it didn't help. The cassettes merely made audible how he kept Flora in stitches. He was giving her a solid grounding in verbal wit, preschool style. Her parents' role was to drop by nightly and impose dour worries about nutrition and rest. After the fourth and final taping session, Pam's path forward became clear. One dialogue passage was, in fo was as follows. Joe said to Flora, never rub your nub where people can see. But I want to, Joe singing. Got to rub my nub in the club, rub my nub in the club, got to rub my nub in the club. Now dub, see my nub, 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 nub. In the club, 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 club. It's like sub, 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 sub. Don't make fun of me. And stop rubbing your nub and do the dance. Rub my nub in the club, chug a lug in the pub, rub a dub in the tub. Flora clapping a log. Rub my nub, rub my nub. Flora's improvisation of a contrapuntal rhythmic chant made her seem extraordinarily musically accomplished for her age. <laughs> At the same time, Pam, her mother, experienced a heretofore unsuspected and overpowering need to raise her child herself. Flora was getting old for a babysitter. She wasn't a baby anymore. Her psyche needed to be molded in Pam's image, or Daniel's at least. Otherwise, what was the point? I need to cut down on my hours, Pam said to her boss the next morning as they stood drinking coffee in the office kitchenette. My kid doesn't even know my name. She calls me mom. <laughs> Daniel, that's the dad, thought the song was great and lacked only one line to be perfect. If my right hand should offend you, cut it off. With Pam at the controls of a four-track and the vocal stylings of Flora and Daniel, Joe recorded a bass and foot-tapping demo of Rub My Nub. The interplay between the 4-4 repetitions of Rub My Nub I and the syncopation of Cut It Off, Cut It Off was strikingly infectious. When Daktari, that's the guy at Atlantic Records, heard it over the phone the next day, he said, C'est ça, mon ami. Joe's reasonable response was, sad monogamy? <laughs> he was summoned to a studio in Chelsea to re-record vocals and two bass parts. It took two days. Without consulting him, Daktari then laid the recording over a big beat synth percussion track, etc. The album Sad Monogamy, that was the working title, in the end it was released as something else, it came together quickly because Joe wrote a song almost every day. Dr. Terry didn't care much about the other tracks. He didn't even ask for changes in Rub My Nub, except for the title, which became Chugalog. One more little bit. The stills and rushes from the first day of filming the Chugalog video astounded Daniel. Watching the shoot on monitors was even more disturbing. He was a show business novice. His experience of comparing images with reality had been acquired firsthand. For example, he saw himself as an okay-looking guy who was not photogenic. In pictures, he looked like a small-eyed, hairy potato. <laughs> Smiling widened his strong jaw into something in photographs invariably depicted as a moon face right on the edge of pug. He, by contrast, he thought of Joe as not an okay-looking guy. He wondered how major label-style publicity was supposed to work with a star like that. He imagined they would pose him far away with contour makeup under dramatic lighting, or maybe on a beach facing out to sea. Joe was short, five feet, seven and a half at the outside with shoes on. He had a cute enough butt and square little shoulders, and if you issued him a smallish guitar, well, you know, Dylan and Springsteen were little guys, right? 
Those were Daniel's not uncharitable thoughts on the subject of Joe's image. He was trying to be realistic. On screen, Joe became a rock god. His Muppet mouth became a 20-tooth smile. His small head became enormous eyes. His girlish chin, an asset at last. His mousy bowl cut required only one sweep of the oiled brush to da dark into a mass of chestnut waves under the lights. His short stature and neck made him fit neatly in the frame. His size made cheap props, such as the foam and cardboard wingback chairs the director had bought from Ikea to be returned for credit the next day, look vast and luxurious. The effect of the camera on his skin was strangest of all. Joe, Joe in real life had a yellowish cast. He was anemic looking, sallow, not olive, not a beautiful look. On screen, he looked vibrant yet blotless, smooth as the piece of paper the cameraman held up to get a white balance score. Reduced to two dimensions with a script to follow, he became someone else who was also himself. The transformation wasn't instantaneous because the two Joes were incommensurate and incompatible. It was like some strange proof of the existence of a parallel universe looming behind our own. Daniel could look up at the soundstage and see the frowns on the dancers straining to evoke eroticism in the presence of the goofiest man alive. They'd met him, he'd introduced himself and talked to them all before the shoot. Lower his gaze to the monitors on the floor at a video shoot where similar women were writhing in a miasma of lust they felt for a handsome singer who was coolly delivering obscenities. Look up again to see Joe gesticulating while the resentful troopers sweated their work out. Look back down, look up again, see stars, see human beings, until his brain abandoned the effort of trying to reconcile them. The video was like a centrifuge, <laughs> separating the world into a visual component that drained into the monitors propped on the floor and a bodily component that became more unsightly with every turn of the machinery. Now I have to ask you whether you had anyone in mind as a model for Joe, your music star. Like any character, there are people who prompted the this idea of a person who could be, who doesn't exist. Was he to you summarizing something about that kind of the world of music then when there could be this pretty unattractive, socially incompetent, but musically gifted person who would somehow be taken up by labels kind of on an off chance and break through that, that you don't think exists now? Um, no, I think um, I make a living as a storyteller partly because the, the way I stockpile facts and experiences in my brain is often in the form of anecdotes. So that I, I just, a lot of things seem to me like stories and I can tease out, you know, what's the, what's the theme here? Mm. But, I, you know, I think of like uh, men I've known who fronted bands and men who were really not attractive at all. Like if you know a guy well and you know that he's basically out of his mind, in debt to everybody, treats women like complete crap and is also physically unattractive, <laughs> dirty and dishonest, and then you walk with him into a, 
a cafe or something and there are you know like beautiful women behind the counter and they're like oh my god it's it's so and so and you can see them starting to glow and primp because oh my god it's it's that guy who fronts some band nobody has ever heard of you know the lost art of puppet orchestra but because he's a singer and stands on a stage he has this kind of borrowed he has charisma an, an aura an aura of and kind. and i think simply because they had when they only see a person on stage there's no reason they would it would occur to them that he's also this other person mm. much more like the people they might meet in their everyday lives yeah or even a person with psychological problems that would lead him to want to do something like stand on a stage. <laughs> <laughs> we we kind of focused a lot on the on the kind of two male characters there, and yeah. there's a little bit about about Pam, who you kind of start with in a way. Yes, yes. And um, you mentioned at the at the beginning that she is a character who's kind of left her parents behind because yeah. they are too conservative. She actually very quickly goes into a kind of fairly serious sort of career, even though she doesn't do it very conventionally. Yeah. Um, and then the little bit that you, you read kind of focuses on her finding that moment of thinking, actually, I need to take charge of the childcare. Yes. And you kind of portray her just switching into a kind of social conservatism that would have seemed very unlikely at the beginning. Can you just tell us a bit about that? Well, there's, there's no reason, I, I don't think there's any reason for me to present someone whose main re rebellion is a very classic adolescent rebellion, where she mm. simply says, whatever my parents are, I'm not that. But she, she consciously doesn't pursue a positive vision. She's punk rock. She rejects everything. And that leaves her with nothing in particular to hang on to. She has some ideals about... Um, about wanting to be innovative and be an artist of some kind, but she she has no education and not a lot of, of information even. And the second part of the book is largely about her daughter, who's given, even though she grows up with the same set of parents, given a completely different kind of education and um, ends up with with an entire superstructure of very complex abstract ideas about how she should live her life, whereas Pam, the, the mother's life, the, there's nothing abstract about it. It's simply, here I stand, I cannot do otherwise, I want to be me, I want, I want just food on the table, a roof over my head. Mm. Uh, it's a very minimal set of demands she makes, and it has, has to do with being from these uh, two different generations. We were talking a little bit about this before, and you pointed out that you know, Miss Lay was a book that took place over a, a kind of time frame, but that it was a very different world. Right. The, the, the action of Miss Lay also spans twenty years, but mm. it, it plays in Tidewater, Virginia, between the sixties and the end of the eighties, and it's largely about how incredibly static and constant that society was. Uh, th there's a slight move toward that sort of new South, a superficial. Uh, emancipation of, uh, of, of women and African Americans, but at the same time, very superficial, it's all lies, where the, in, this, uh, in this book there are major societal changes that come because it starts around 1990 and goes up to the present. What I wanted to ask you really, what did it feel like, what prompted you to think I would like to, to write this kind of almost panorama, which is kind of one family story or one set of people's stories? but does broaden out to give us a kind of picture of 
big changes in society, in American society? I don't know. <laughs> really, I, I don't know what prompted me. I, I think, I feel like, like it's that thing people say about Mount, Mount Everest, supposedly, because it's there. I just thought, okay, this story is there. What was the germ then? Where did it, what's the bit of this story that first came and rooted itself? One thing, 9-11, the attacks on the World Trade Center are about a third of the way through the book. And to me, they were, they're sort of a hinge point in American history. Um, simply, you know, because I grew up, I came up under the Cold War, where, you know, it was a completely bipolar world, completely dialectical. Uh, and that's the way people talked about most things. Many things that are now seen as a spectrum I mean, I, I'm, it's not like I'm heavy into Spengler or something, but I, but I do think there are analogies and homologies that, in the culture that get echoed through a lot of, of, of the concepts people use. And I mean, when I was 20, there wasn't even such a thing as bisexuality. There were straight people and gay people, mm-hmm. period. If you said you were bisexual, people would make fun of you for not wanting to admit you were gay. You know, okay, and now look at the situation now, as everyone knows, there's one sexuality per person, basically. Mm-hmm. That transition from, from that time to this, that, well, the Cold War world was two opposing camps, and everything that went on on the planet was some sort of proxy engagement between the US and the Soviet Union, and nobody else counted. China almost didn't exist back then, economically and militarily. It was just the US and the Soviet Union. And then suddenly, uh, and as an American, you had this feeling, oh, I live in a world power, nothing happened to me, nobody ever hurts us, we're invulnerable, we're the kings and queens of the universe. And then along comes 9-11 and says, uh-oh, no, you're not. It was you know, an enormous emotional shock for everyone with really, really unfortunate consequences, as we all know. And I wanted, I wanted to work those through. I mean, initially I had the novel in two sections called Peace Dividend and uh, Forever Wars, which is like the two epics mm-hmm. there. You know, mm-hmm. after the end of the Cold War, people thought we'd just be uh, like leaning back and spending money on social programs and the arts. <laughs> when when that um, when when what you're describing that hinge point yeah. nine eleven where where were you you weren't living in the states then I was I was in Germany so I saw a lot I saw it all live on TV and like Americans who were all on their way to work it was mid afternoon <laughs> so I'm just I'm wondering yeah. what that you know ultimately you know over the long period um, when you come to write about America yeah. what the impact of not being resident in America is on the way that you write about it and well, think about well, that's, it. Well, that's, that's very clear to me because I think you probably all know that uh, little, the saying about a frog in boiling water, you know, if you, if you start, put the frog in cold water and turn it up, he never jumps out because he does, okay, I'm sure frogs aren't really that stupid, but human beings are. And, and so when I go back to the, would be going back to the United States every 10 months or six months or something at, you know, my, my parents were living until recently, so I was constantly going back. And every time I went in, it was like a sort of a, a deep dive into American culture. And I would see dramatic differences every time I went. Things that had been unimaginable mm-hmm. a year before, but suddenly they were there. And In every, culturally, politically, socially, 
On every plane, do you mean? Uh, yeah, like you know, the guys with like little round wire rim glasses and PhDs in philosophy bagging groceries, they didn't exist in 2000. <laughs> just, I mean, the, the, is, I, w- I would just get a, a, a very vivid impression of American society and then, you know, about, go back to Germany and hole up in my cave and think about it until the next time I came back. Mm. Mm. Well, so you... I was seeing changes taking place in a way that I think was uh, not quite as obvious to my friends who just thought of it as some sort of natural progression. of. When you talk about, you, you mentioned a few minutes yeah. ago, the, the consequences of which we're all aware. And you said that, you know, there was a kind of, when there was very binary thinking, uh, people seem to be kind of fighting proxy wars. But I mean, you could argue that that's also what's happening now, that there is a kind of proxy binary sort of thinking going on, at least in the US and uh, in the UK us too. And, us and them. Yeah, exactly. The people who get it and the, the woke and the less woke. Or, is that what you mean? Well, and the, and the thought of the, the, the people on the right of dividing themselves into us and them. This still seems to be a very kind of proxy war that, that's being fought out in front of us. Would you agree? I mean, the, the right does skew a lot older. I mean, it's, it's a generational divide in, in, in the U.S. It's very distinctly, it's younger people who have drifted so far to the left in a really fascinating way. The same thing's going on in, in, in Germany in the European elections, the majority of everybody under 30 in Germany voted for the Green Party, which is just freaky in a good way. I mean, I, I think of myself as having a reasonable level of brain plasticity and, you know, thinking of, you know, adapting my thoughts to the current state of the universe, but not everyone my age is quite that Plastic. Into changing how they yeah. think, and, have, and, you know, and I, and I see my I see myself dragging my feet sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's it's not easy. Can you tell us a bit about? I mean, you may want to to read a bit or as suits. Um, yeah. A bit about Flora, who is this kind of, as it were, the representative in the book of this younger generation, highly politicized in a very different situation to her mother. Tell us about her. Well, what you wanted to talk about. Um, I think she's delightful. <laughs> there's a really wonderful chapter where she goes to Ethiopia and uh, tries to help, on, help out on a small farming project there. It's something I'd love to read aloud, but it would take the entire hour. She is very... See, now, now I'm halting, because I'm not sure what to say. What did you want her to I, I, animate, I wrote I guess. it. I know way too much about this girl. <laughs> <laughs> what did you want to animate about the kind of... I don't know, the different generations in US politics, the different factions that are opening up. I mean, she's... I don't, I don't think I have an answer for that question. That's okay. Okay. I'll ask you another one. Okay, good. Um, I know that we actually need to open up to the audience oh, fairly soon, but... Oh, but I wanted to read this other bit. You have time. I'm going to ask you another question okay. first, can okay. I? Yeah. I wanted to ask you a little bit about this business of publishing, beginning to publish uh, novels relatively later in life and what that felt like and that business of The Wall Creeper, a book that you wrote in three weeks uh, when you had other stuff going on, but you wrote it almost as it were kind of on commission. You wrote it for a specific purpose and what it felt like then to have published these books really pretty quickly as far as we, the audience, the readership, are concerned. Well, I mean, all these books had a 
a purpose uh, or written for a specific person. I would say Doxology is the first book I wrote the way you're supposed to write a book, which is art for art's sake, with no one in particular in mind. I'm not mm. kidding. Um, because I, Mislaid, I think, is very good. It got no nominated for the National Book Award. Mm -hmm. but, I, but I wrote it very deliberately using certain themes that I thought would get me an agent. That's all I wanted to do, get an agent. And when I wrote The Wall Creeper, it was to like, you know, educate Jonathan Franzen about anal sex. Because <laughs> there's so much of it in his books. And, I asked well, him, you ever, he wasn't I asked him about, do you ever had anal sex? He's like, of course I've had anal sex. But you think about that, for, just think on it for a second. What did yes mean? Um, uh, Are you saying, no, I'm going I'm, I'm to stop there and unpack that, as it were, a little bit. But t what, did you, what do you mean by that? And if in Nicotine his books, to, do, you, do you mean you think it didn't, it was not, correctly or accurately or successfully portrayed in his books. Is that what uh, you're saying? No, no it's, it's presented as, um, as the ultimate form of intimacy, something people can do when they entirely trust each other. But I don't want to talk about it. And, and Nicotine, <laughs> I wrote, um, Nicotine I wrote for money. I, had been, I, I knew I was going to have a profile in The New Yorker pretty soon uh, in, because the reporter had come to see me. And my agent said... You know, Nell, if I had a manuscript to sell in the week between when that profile comes out and the first sales figures for Miss Lade, I could get a lot of money for it. So, so I just sat down and wrote a novel. But you still have to think of a novel to write. This had never been a problem for me. So, so I wrote this novel. I got a lot of money for it. And that's what... Crazy amount of money. And, and so... That's what made it possible for me to write this because I just felt like, okay. So nicotine now, has funded now doxology. I'm like, now I'm like Paris Hilton. I can just do whatever I... I'm not that rich, but what I mean is... <laughs> I, now I can do what I want. Now I, I, I just felt like, okay, I'm secure now. And, um, and I've been accused of making this novel more conventional or something, but maybe... Maybe that was an urge in me all along to, to attempt something. Because I, I trust myself. It's not going to, no matter how hard I try, it's not going to get truly conventional. Do you, now, can I ask you then before you read, do yeah. you think you have an urge not to write the same book every time? Because your books are really quite different from I one would another. Be deeply and yet they're all recognizably you. I, I would, I'm always horrified if when I find any thought repeated. Uh, so, yeah. I, I think you have to put time between books. Um, I mean, a, a lot of writers who, who write have been publishing since they were 24 or something. They have to like wait four or five years or seven years between books simply to get enough new input, to almost get a new personality so they can write a book that's different. Whereas I, um, starting to publish at the age of 50, I had a lot of material I could go back into my life, different ways of thinking that were historically important to me that I didn't subscribe to anymore, that I could draw on. So there's like a kind of full mental Rolodex there to kind of right, spin. Right, right. So I was able to, yeah. to crank my way through it. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I, you know, I don't know if there's anything left. It might be empty, but, but well, it would also it, be really good. It depends if, if you need more money. Not right now, and I don't. <laughs> I, I don't. 
intend to publish another novel for at least five years because it would be good if people had time to read this one. You know, like buy some paperbacks before like I hit them with the next one. Are you going to read a bit for us? Now? I, this I is this read, is part of Flora. This it? no, this doesn't even mention Flora, oh. but but it's just it's about Flora. Uh, in part, but I, it also amuses me simply because of American politics right now. The current woman in love with Bull, Bull is Flora's significantly older boyfriend, who's a democratic strategist, was named, and she, he always has someone in love with him because he's perfectly cute. The current woman in love with Bull was named Jennifer Wang. She was several years older, and her femaleness had never struck him with any particular force. After a number of upsetting offers from men who were much younger or much older, I skip a description of her, he had, he, she had abandoned sexual relations in favor of chaste devotion to Bull. Her career was taking off. She worked in radio. While her hopes of marrying him declined to where her chances had been from the start, she served as his gratis public relations bureau at National Public Radio, always ready to spread quotes, rumors, and memes. In return, she got access to the puny nonpareils of information he was obliged to sprinkle over his sweet, creamy myth-making. That is, their relationship was a one-way street, and she needed to move on and get a crush on someone else. But she wasn't there yet. He made a date to meet her at an art opening in Lower Northeast, near Gallaudet University. He arrived late after the speeches. He grabbed a glass of red wine, followed her to an empty corner where a white porcelain cherub was copulating with a polyurethane tomato hornworm and told her, I have news, I'm in love. That's great, she lied. Finally gonna tie the knot? Who is she? Nobody you know, intern or something. Jennifer sighed, Bull, you're making a mistake. You gotta be kidding. She's a physically perfect, healthy, beautiful, entertaining young woman, and she finds me sexually attractive. How can that be a mistake? In what unjust universe is that a mistake? Just letting you know I'm having a happy phase. So if you want to take advantage of me, now's the time. Professionally, I mean. Tell me about Rajo. What's up with Rajo? Puppy Rajo was a candidate for district attorney, a lawyer in private practice, and a hard-right Republican from the libertarian wing running in the Democratic primary because Republicans didn't stand a chance in general elections in D.C. He believed in fostering the exercise of personal liberty to the maximum extent allowed by a conservative interpretation of the law and in locking up wrongdoers and throwing away the key. He was polling alarmingly well after coming out in favor of marijuana decriminalization, which had already been enacted into law. The other candidates, confused, were ignoring him. Defending legal marijuana would have made, made them look a tad obsessive, as though all the weed they were smoking made them unable to forget about weed. Plus, you couldn't attack him without saying poopy, with the, oo sound, with the U sound of put or foot, and Rajo, uh, R-A-D-Z-I-O, as Rajo. To run him down properly in the age of search terms, he had to spell his name aloud. Major headache, Bull said, but he has an Achilles heel. Do tell. He defended the flea-collar mom. You don't remember? Neighbor of mine in Georgetown who put a flea-collar on a newborn baby so when the kid's two months old, she takes her in for MMR or DDT or something and the thing's pretty much part of her neck. That can't be true. Rajo's defense was that she had a right to raise her kid any way she wanted. Said it was ironic to prosecute her when abortion was legal. 
This was in maybe 1979. He lost and they gave her 25 years. That's fucking disturbing. He got out of criminal defense into estate law for a while. This is definitely the man to put our great city back on track. The flea collar mom. How come I never heard of this? Well, because you canceled your LexisNexis subscription when you got Google. So uh, where's your intern? Is she here? Her name's Flora. What a pretty name. A pretty name for a pretty girl currently manning a table on a sidewalk in Old Town Alexandria. She volunteers for the Greens. Oh, no. She was raised ambitious from a competitive background. I think she's looking for an opportunity to crash and burn. It's important to learn early in life how that feels. You couldn't be righter. Most people's first impulse is to join the winning team. Flora already darkly suspects that the bad guys are in charge. I like that in a woman. Nice guys finish last. He clapped his hand onto her shoulder, a moment of contact to reward the double entendre and said, so what else is new? Well, tell me what you want to hear. Well, let me see. It's 2016, summer of 2016. Hillary Clinton pulled out of the race and endorsed a three-term Colorado governor who's white, moderate, and 56. His name is um, Charles Dexter. Former firefighter, made his money as a brain surgeon. Elk Hunter, married for 30 years to a gorgeous Vietnamese-American girl who has a chain of craft shops. Brilliant, beautiful kids. One of them's on the Olympic downhill ski team. Boy or girl? Girl. And you should see this guy's face. George Clooney meets Hugh Grant. You know that German guy who works for the Pope? That's who he looks like. Oh, yeah? She pulled out her phone and said after a brief pause, George Ganswine. That's Georg. The younger Georg Ganswine. But his friends call him Dex. This guy could win, Jennifer said. He's an unstoppable fighter, a master of trade law, committed to education, passionate about preparing our youth to make the 21st century an American century, but always over a beer. There is no man on earth you would rather drink a beer with. Bull put his empty wine glass down on a pedestal and said, let's get dinner before I get in too deep. But is he tough on crime? Oh, his college fi fiance was raped and murdered by the unemployed. He knows what it means to suffer. Is he a good businessman? You bet, he patented, patented a way to turn spent nuclear fuel into gold. There's a painting here you need to see, she said. She touched his hand and he followed her into the next room. He moved slowly, nodding at two for, former employees and shaking hands with a city council member whose campaign he'd run years before. Finally, he and Jennifer were standing in front of the painting she liked. It depicted a disconsolate Godzilla seated at a dining table with tears in its eyes staring open-mouthed at a birthday cake. I don't get it, he said. He breathes fire so he can't blow out the candles and get his wish. I mean, I don't get why it reminds you of me. I didn't say that. It reminds me of Hillary. <laughs> One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Well, thank you so much. Shall we take some questions from the audience? You mentioned um, the, the age-old problem of uh, bands getting more conventional and possibly duller the more proficient they get. Is, yeah. that, is that something you worry about as a writer? Like, is, that a, is, that, is it a similar problem in terms of the more proficient you become as a writer? Do you worry about originality and things like that? Um, yeah, no, I figure it's... Uh, thank you. you can't win them all. You can't have everything. Or at least I can't, I assume. <laughs> so... So, yeah, I can write a raw, unconventional, short, challenging novel like The Wall Creeper and get an advance of $300 and, you know, go back to my hereditary estate and, you know, <laughs> ride my horses and maybe do some sailing. <laughs> or I <More>. can <laughs> attempt to take challenging material, um, take deep thoughts and pack them into a format that a publisher would be happy to print a lot of copies of and give me a lot of money for. And I simply cannot help thinking of what I do as a job because I wrote for a long time without publishing. Publishing is commerce. And... Uh, writing is something else entirely. You know, if I end up paying an artistic price, it, you know, if, if I, through some, because of some kind of inner censor, end up writing stuff that's stupid and boring to make a mass audience happy, I'll only feel bad about it if nobody buys the book. <laughs> but now, yeah, people love the War Creeper. This challenging, short, unconventional book. It's magnificent. I like it myself. Well, good. <laughs> I mean, that was the book that brought you to us. Yeah. You know, it, it's is there a problem with saying or thinking? Okay, the mass audience is there, and if you do write something, as it were, the art for art's sake, something that is challenging and unconventional, that it will be rejected, because The War Creeper wasn't rejected by the people who found it. It's about actually being able to put your stuff in front of an audience, isn't it? The thing is, the, the success of The War Creeper was something no one could have predicted... But at the same time, let's not forget that when The Wall Creeper came out, I already had a contract with Echo Press. Um, they came, it was like six months later. 
my agent tried really, like, she just thought, let's suppress the wall creeper. This is going to destroy your track record. And we'll have trouble getting anyone to uh, promote mislaid. You know, bookstores aren't going to want to distribute it. And and yes, it's quite true. You know, I went I went into the Barnes and Noble on the Upper East Side the day mislaid was published and trying to find it. And you know, there it was, filed under Z. Um, you know, at the bottom right hand corner of the novel, um, one copy. You know, that's what happens if you have an indie press book that sells in indie press numbers. Mm-hmm. It wasn't even my intention that the wall creeper come out exactly the way it came out. It's just uh, the, this little press had the manuscript for a long time, and then they typeset it, to my surprise. You know, I thought I'd be turning in another draft. <laughs> you know, then, then she's like, okay, it's ready to go. <laughs> you know, it, it was, uh, it's all over my head. But... <laughs> You know, I just, I soldier on. I figured the writing is my job and other people can take care of the other stuff. Sure. We have another, yes, there's a question there. It's a, it's a question about nicotine. Yeah. Um, part of what I find so funny and like so much about nicotine is, is how you skewer activists. And it felt to me when I read it like it was so contemporary and it was about activists I had met at university literally three years ago. But then, you know, hearing you talk about obviously drawing on experiences from your past, I'm wondering if, you know, what makes activists write for skewering and so brilliant to write about, are there some essential things that you think are are the same in your experience? You know, you're, it's not necessarily that you're portraying the activists of now. You mean there's a continuity? Yeah. yeah. I mean, I have met and dealt with and worked with the activists of now, but it, there's a book, now I can't remember the author's name, called A Girl Among the Anarchists by like somebody who was mixed up like related to the Rossettis it's from like 1905 set in London really hilarious and and when I first read it 20 years ago when I was living with these West Philly anarchists I was like I know all these people I can I can there's like one-to-one correlation like this this character that that they nicknamed the bleeding lamb was this guy named Scott Lampson. He was in A Girl Among the Anarchists. That sort of apolitical resistance where people say, we're not going to vote, we're going to bring about the revolution by other means. They're always going to have the same struggle, or at least since, a, since the Paris Commune, when you know immediately after that, the police in Central Europe came up with the idea of agent provocateur and of just getting people into these groups who would demand for things to be much more violent than anyone ever intended. So they'd have an excuse to take them out, which has been just a constant theme in every group I've been involved with, sometimes in really hilarious ways. You know, the the FBI informer in uh, Philly, whom I drove to suicide, I did, I just did. He like, would like come to meetings and and say like, where are the bombs? <laughs> Shouldn't we use bombs? <laughs> it was that patent. I, he committed suicide because he was um, he was like sexually stalking someone I knew who was twelve. And that doesn't sound like you driving him. To no, but that. the funny thing was, there are a lot of very. <laughs> 
in an anarchist scene, there are always a lot of very young people involved in, in taking very sure. adult roles. Like the person running a printing press will be like 14 years old, right? <laughs> so one of these leading anarchists who's 15 was just telling me about her 12-year-old friend and how he followed her around and would go to her house and stare at her window at night. And the 15-year-old girl thought this was just like, oh, man. <laughs> well, that's not what I thought. And all I had to do was spread the word. And then he was, um, he was making a living as an FBI informer. We didn't know that until it turned out that I had completely, by getting him barred from all the events, I had destroyed his He'd primary blown, source blown of income. I destroyed his source of income. So that was it. Is the, just to, to kind of pick up from the, anyway. the questioner, <laughs> I mean, is the, is the idea <laughs> talking about activism, I mean, there's the, that, as characters, they're just evidently, it's going to be a rich scene because you have people who, on the one hand, are trying to subsume themselves to a larger cause and, that, on the other hand, have to have an enormous pot of self-belief, even a kind of arrogance to believe they can effect change. I mean, if you, if you read like a soci sociological study of activism, sociologists, I think, even very critical lefty sociologists are quite realistic about it. No, you can't affect change. Who are you kidding? This is delusions of grandeur. And every group I've been involved with doing you know, serious political work in the last 10 years, mostly on environmental issues, it's just absolutely astounding the walls you run into, you know, you beating your head against the wall mm. all the time mm. because the, the power structures, and that's a major theme of, of nicotine, the power structures are there and yet people want to act as, as if the revolution has already happened. They say, okay, the, the police are vicious, they're brutal, they're heavily armed, let's go give them a hard time uh, with, you know, carrying nothing but like, Leaflets. Let, let, let's go. Let's go. You know, beat up some policemen using our leaflets, and, and then they wonder why they come out with you know uh, broken hips from being knocked down and kicked. Being someone who thinks in anecdotes, I'm I'm forced to <laughs> recall the elderly woman. I was I was once on a bus going to demonstration in Jerusalem, and on this bus was the entire Israeli left. Back when there were still 40, at least forty-five people in the Israeli left, now there might be about twelve. Um, I mean, it was Uri Avneri and his wife were on this bus. I mean. The only Marxist-Leninist in Israel was on the bus, and this little old communist lady who was like this tall. Um, she's so we're at the demonstration, and we're, we're yelling and screaming, you know, down with Netanyahu 20 years ago, and these policemen come on come up on horses, and the little old communist lady says, "Im susim ani <laughs> like, I'm not about to de de debate anything with horses. <laughs> and just this wandered off. <laughs> and those horses, you know, it's really easy to pretend they're not there, but they are. They're there. I think we've got time for one more question. Or can I just ask about the how did you come up? with the idea of the ending of the story. Did you know the last scene before you start writing it? Because I do like the ending of the doxology. That's quite powerful and strong. Thank you very, very much. Because I also really like the ending. <laughs> I mean, 
that ending ties together a symbolic complex that's in the novel. I mean, maybe one of the reasons sometimes reviews call it ambitious, simply because there's you know a visible, actual, uh, symbolic level happening. And if there's any kind of twist, there are several twists to that ending, but one is the reader's realization at the same time a character realizes it of why she's so attractive to attracted to a certain kind of landscape and that that's definitely something i planned um nan you've been great fun thank you for speaking english for singing for telling us about jonathan franz and all sorts of things thank you so so much there's a guest of honor here tonight some a very special person come on avner avner shots my muse, my my muse, Avner Schatz. Describe to me you whom I wrote private novels. You described him to me earlier as the only postmodernist in Israel. The token, yeah. The token postmodernist in yeah. Israel. Well, the former token. Yeah, well, nobody here. Nobody here tonight, though. <laughs> yeah. Another round of applause, I think. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello? Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.